0: Hi, my name is Kurt Mahan, I'm an adjunct associate professor of pharmacy out of the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my co-faculty is Dr. Ty Kaiser, who is professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, and also a critical care pharmacy specialist at the University of Colorado Hospital and an expert in anticoagulation and reversal of anticoagulation. And this podcast by ProCE covers key takeaways from the presentation, management of anticoagulant-related major bleeding, clinical updates, and best practices for health system pharmacists that was presented at the 2021 ASHP conference. It is supported by an educational grant from Alexion, AstraZeneca, rare disease and we're going to talk about some questions that came up during and after the presentation some of which we couldn't address and also some talking points and our first area and topic is really about interruption of doax in anticoagulation doax being direct oral anticoagulants we have now for 10a inhibitors that have reached the market since uh, about 11 years ago and uh, one thrombin inhibitor dabigatran that's also reached the market and we have several reversal agents that are specific idarucizumab for dabigatran and index in it for the 10a inhibitors apixaban and rivaroxaban, and we also have factor replacement strategy for warfarin four factor pcc in conjunction with vitamin k and then speaking specifically about doax there was a question about how to do this safely and uh, a hint that abrupt discontinuation may cause uh, or trigger a stroke potentially and uh, I just wanted to say we don't really know that when you stop the DOAX that there's any rebound effect. We we think that there's not a rebound effect. It's basically just returning patients who are at high risk for thromboembolism, uh, such as those that have AFib and maybe a risk for stroke or a venous thromboembolism patient, EBT or PE, and they've had a recent event. They're at high risk for recurrent events and they're also at risk for death uh, from PE. So when you stop the DOAC, we're really returning that patient to their baseline thromboembolic risk state. And uh, I think uh, the colleagues out of McMaster in New York, uh, specifically Jim Duketis and Alex Faropoulos and their colleagues uh, published the PAUSE study, and it it really highlights that Overall, the half-lives are fairly short, and you can stop the agent if you have to look at both the risk of bleeding. You also have to look at the individual patient risk of thromboembolism and also look at the, the type of surgery. And usually, just by holding the DOAC for a specific time, if it's a perioperative intervention and temporary interruption, and then restarting it. Uh, if it's low risk, really, we can usually restart the DOAC one day later. If it's a higher risk surgery and higher risk bleeding, we can usually start uh, two to three days later the DOAC again. And one important point I think that is brought up by AC Forum and other experts is that you don't have to necessarily start the DOAC at at the uh, therapeutic dose you can use step up therapy. For instance, with Rivaroxaban instead of starting a patient back at 20, if they were on 20 milligram daily for AFib, you can start at 10 milligram and then increase to 15 milligram and then increase to 20 if H and H and bleeding and hemostasis appears to be achieved. And I think this is a little bit different than the bleeding patient that we were talking about, but there's some uh, nuances that are similar. And if, if a bleeding patient uh, with a GI uh, bleed, I think some of the data suggests maybe uh, uh, restarting around a week to possibly two weeks. Of course, ICH is a more severe bleed, and starting possibly four weeks, three to four weeks later after the bleed, if, if everything looks stable and all the teams are in agreement, is is reasonable. So I'll defer to Ty now for any additional Points that he would like to make.
1: Uh, excellent, Dr. Mahan, I agree with everything you s- stated. You know, it's a fine balance. I think the the difficult decision, more so, is when to restart anticoagulation and how to do so. And it's a balance not only of the bleeding risk in these patients that have bled, but also the thrombotic risk. And you know, you have to take into account many different pieces, such as you know, do they have a mechanical valve or is this non-valvular AFib, or do they have an active PE versus um, chronic PE? So there's there's a lot of different things to, to consider, and I think Dr. Mahan did an excellent job um, going over all those. Another question that came up during the talk and some of the things that I covered was related to the ACC guidelines and the fact that four-factor PCC uh, is recommended when a DEXANET is not available. And this is a, a recommendation, as you see throughout. This guideline was published um, in 2020, so a lot of the work was done in 2019. And there are several, several issues, um, not only related to formulary inclusion, but also the availability of the product originally when it was first um, approved to be on the market by the FDA. Um, so. If you do not have it available for any reason, whether it's a shortage, uh, out of stock, or formulary decision, the guidelines do lean on the the opportunity to use four-factor PCC for patients. Um, I will defer to Dr. Mahan. He did a great job of explaining the data between the two agents and some of why those decisions were made. But in in this case, the guidelines would say that four-factor PCC would be an alternative agent that, that can be utilized.
0: Thanks, Dr. Kaiser. Yeah, I think that's a good response. I, I think, again, it's just we were using a four-factor PCC because we really didn't have many other options. When the dox came to market, a barrier to their use was that we were told there was no reversal agent, so there was reluctance initially to to use DOAX and then we got comfortable using them, and there was an outcry for a specific reversal agent, and all four 10A inhibitor companies pooled resources, and they all worked together because they knew the importance of having a specific targeted reversal agent. And that's when uh, IndexNet was rationally designed by scientists, and they really went after a drug that had a Mechanism of action that they knew would work on grabbing the anticoagulant and taking it out of play. Before that point, you know, we were using factor seven, we were using fibo, we were using three-factor PCCs, we we're using anything that might <coughs> help. And so, yeah, I think now that we have FDA approvals for idarucizumab and for indexanet. Many of your organizations are looking at and weighing more heavily, as I stated in the presentation, actually sitting at the table, talking to the FDA, and knowing that there's a mechanism of action. And we know that there's a mechanism of action and how indefinite works for the 10A inhibitors, and same for ideucizumab. And it's really questionable, the mechanism of action, of of four-factor PCC with 10A inhibitors. And again, we presented data that even if it were to work, that dosing of probably 20-fold higher would be necessary to overcome a 10A inhibitor because these factors uh, are not depleted in 10A inhibitor patients. You know, to circle really back to the question, ACC and ASEP and uh, also ACCP really feel that having a mechanism of action, having a reversal agent that you can see drops the anti factor 10A level, that's important. And sitting at the table with the FDA and getting regulatory approval, that's important. <clears throat> and uh, PCC may be an option as second line. Most of those organizations that I talked about have tiered out andexanet and idarucizumab, and the target specific reversals as first line or first tier, and then PCC is second line, and it's for the reasons I mentioned. But uh, it doesn't mean don't make andexanet available and then say. Well, they say that you can use factor, uh, four-factor PCC if Indexanet or Iderecizumab isn't available. So, let's just stock that. Uh, P&T committees need to give, uh, I guess, more heedance to the fact that Indexinet has continued to do more clinical studies, and uh, they're studying it in the NXI. We really don't know, you know, how effective four-factor PCC is. And it may be ineffective, and it may be actually more harmful than it is helpful for 10A inhibitor patients that are bleeding. We don't know that answer yet. We don't know that indexinet's going to be the answer to everything either. But uh, I think they're pursuing the clinical research, especially with the NXI, that will answer that question as they're comparing indexinet to usual medical care, and it's it's uh, randomized and there's two arms, so it's comparative, and we'll know the answer. So moving on, uh, there was some questions about uh, comments on DOACs, uh, probably more specifically the 10A inhibitors, but dabigatran also elevates INR and different reagents used and uh, associated bleedings. Uh, this this facility really didn't have anti-factor 10As in house, and it 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 depends on. Um, on the agents. I guess if we're looking at, if we're looking at 10A inhibitors specifically, uh, rivaroxaban, PT may be helpful if if you have that available. I know, uh, you know, I, INR is gonna be elevated with the pixaban. Uh, it's usually less elevated, probably in the tune of 1.3 to 1.5. And it's obviously not calibrated. But it can tell you whether the patient may be on an anticoagulant if you're having to make a choice to treat a patient that's bleeding in front of you in the ER or in-house. Similarly, uh, rivaroxaban elevates the INR, usually to a more drastic extent. Uh, I'll see INRs of anywhere from 1, 1. 1.7 to 2.5 probably on average. And I've seen INRs even as high as 3.5 or 4 in certain patients. So it can help if if you need to determine whether to treat a patient and to kind of know whether they're on an anticoagulant uh, at that time. There there may be other options uh, in the ER such as such as uh, ACTs and and things like that. But sometimes you don't have the luxury of a lab test to tell you how to proceed uh, necessarily with reversal agent, and you have to do your best to just gather the information and use what you have. And if the patient has an important life-threatening bleed, unfortunately, if it looks like they're on an anticoagulant, we have to move forward with the information we have at that time. So, Dr. Kaiser, I'll defer to you. I know you know uh, a, a lot in this
1: area. Yeah. Thanks, Kurt. That that sums it up very well. I think the the INR and the Perth time, the elevation is going to depend a lot on the reagent you're using and whether it's a point of care test or something run in your in your main chemistry laboratory. And I, so I would use these very much as kind of a wide brushstroke or a qualitative assessment. It's really hard to use them to quantify the exact level. And there's a lot of things to consider with the dose. Low dose is versus high doses of these agents, depending on the indication, the timing, and the dosing interval makes a huge difference in what you see. Um, so, a lot of things to think about. There are other other tests, depending on on where you you work. As uh, Dr. Mahan said, you know whether it's a tag and looking at the R time if you have that available to you in your emergency room or your operating room. Um, there's also some effects in other parts of the of the tag that you can look at the anti tna even if you can't get immediate or stat results um, sending that ahead of time can give you some information on the back end related to future decision making with your reversal strategy and, and outcomes in the patient uh, if you're using dabigatran then in addition to, to the ones we talked about the APTT and or the thrombin time um, can be helpful to identify that you know a lot of a lot of companies are working on various tests and i think that uh, in the in the future we're going to have a lot more options available to us to kind of identify uh, these these different agents and maybe even help us specify uh, which agent or presume which pa- agent's patients may be on um, if they come in and we have unknown history or medical uh, reconciliation on what medications they're receiving which should which should help us uh, with our kind of reversal strategy So with regards to indexinet and in considering formulary decisions, how do you go about thinking about the different types of bleeds, those that may have higher risk of mortality, such as an intracranial hemorrhage or other types of major bleeds, and what sort of restrictions might you consider in in your hospital? And I think this is an excellent question and something that each hospital is going to kind of decide on from from our standpoint uh, we are taking kind of the ACC guidelines approach which is any any critical bleed um, critical organ and or you know intercranial hemorrhage meets the qualifications for index net use and pharmacists are given the green light to finish the order entry and and move the the process forward with regards to other major bleeds that may not be in a critical organ or uh, have imminent uh, mortality or morbidity associated with them uh, we commonly go forward as the guidelines would suggest with um, kind of a standard of care approach providing support whether that is volume replacement and or uh, other surgical or procedural interventions and if if the uh, bleeding is not controlled then we would move forward with index and then anything outside of that is is required to, to go through a hematology consult. Yeah,
0: I, I agree with your points, Dr. Kaiser. I think that another important point with treating these bleeding patients is, is almost to take a time out. I think that when patients are presenting to the ED or bleeding in, in the hospital or other areas of the healthcare system, it, it really uh, exerts an extinct almost panic for clinicians and we need to really step back and take a deep breath and really slow things down as much as we can. I completely agree with with your points on really providing supportive care and compression and IV fluids and trying to get the bleed under control by other methods first and then concurrently gathering as much information as we can before making decisions to use a reversal agents and, uh, and or factor replacement. Uh, I think once once we've given the reversal agents, uh, obviously we cannot, or factor replacement, we can't take that decision back. So I think really working slowly and carefully up, up to the point of reversal agents. Administration, uh, we should do that carefully and and slowly, since uh, often bleeding in front of you is is kind of a panic situation and a code situation or in in the emergency department. Uh, there was also a little bit of discussion about just you know chromogenic and calibrated anti-factor 10a's, um, and and we touched on it a little bit uh, in in the indexinets. Uh, and, and DEXA-4, really, the, uh, the anti-factor 10A level reversal did moderately correlate in ICH patients. And uh, I think that that's an important group. As Dr. Kaiser mentioned, the case fatality rate, really, for ICH in, in both the uh, apixaban and rivaroxaban AFib trials were in the 45 to 48 percent range and so a patient presenting with an ICH on those agents at the time had almost a 50 percent risk of mortality. You can see in the ANEXA-4 results the ICH mortality was around 15 percent. So while it's still early, uh, there are suggestions that and also in the Coleman data, also in, in the Alexander Cohen data that's in press now, that mortality may be less and lower with the specific agent in and dexanet than with PCC. And so what what is the cost of, uh, of a life lost prematurely, uh, potentially? We need to keep that into consideration with these formulary decisions, if mortality is improved, sometimes health plans uh, and healthcare systems are not giving that enough weight, but that's specifically why the reversal agent was, was designed and brought to market, was to improve outcomes in bleeding patients that are on 10A inhibitors or uh, dabigatran, and to have a very specific target of action that that we know reverses the the anticoagulant um, the discussion specifically again on labs and chromogenic factor anti factor 10a i think we discussed it a little bit but there's movements towards potentially you know being able to use a non calibrated anti factor 10a level and i think dr Sirode. I think that he uh, has been working in this area, and there's others. There's a a French publication and another publication that shows maybe cutoffs, even with a non-calibrated anti-factor 10A level uh, for heparin or LMWH under 0.3 or 0.5 international units per mil may tell you that the patient is not on significant enough levels of anticoagulant to take a reversal approach we will shift now to health systems handling of the dilemma of choosing whether to spend money on Indexnet to treat the bleed of one patient uh, versus really the resources of of, of a pharmacist or pharmacy tech and and pharmacy staff who could potentially impact uh, hundreds of thousands of patient lives in that year. There's a discussion really of life-saving drugs for the same cost as that one dose of andexanet. So it really gets into the the discussion of uh cost and how you're looking at at this and evaluating this and and I think a pharmacy sometimes does a poor job at just looking at the drug cost and uh, really some of the the data I've published in venous thromboembolism and other areas, cost of illness models. We don't we don't look at dr- just drug costs. You really have to look at everything that's going on in the hospital and outcomes that occur further down the line. And and that really gets back to um, what is what is the outcome uh, of the patient uh, if if we're reversing a patient with indexinet, for example, and mortality is much improved, which may play out in the future, especially in ICH, one of the most feared bleeding. Anexa, Anexa 4 was enriched in conjunction with discussions with the FDA uh, to have more ICH patients in it because everyone recognized that that is one of the most serious bleeds and that is uh, one of the most fearful bleeds. But you have to take into consideration what is the cost of a, a premature life loss, for instance. And in, in our studies, a premature loss uh, life loss was $150,000 to $170,000 in the VTE arena, which really is applicable to this, because if andexinet if does play out where it is affecting hematoma volume and, re, and reducing that more so, or limiting it more so than four-factor PCC or other usual medical care, that's important. That needs to be taken into consideration. And I think that there's other issues that we need to take into consideration with it. There's the NTAP payment, for instance, that reduces the cost in certain certain groups, I believe Medicare, Medicaid, down to roughly $12,500. And so if you're using that versus For instance, a a weight-based four-factor PCC approach, and you're comparing the two, Um, we used in the ASF guidelines an average weight of 70 kilos. The reviewers wanted us to put cost in in one of the tables, so we used average uh, wholesale price, I believe, based off of pharmacy references. But you really need to look at what happens to the patient down the line. if you're going to give a, a weight base 50 units per kilo and the patient's 150 kilos, and sometimes there's, in in certain guidelines, there's recommendations to repeat a 50 uh, uh, unit per kilogram dose, you're looking at, a you know, 50 to 100 units of four-factor PCC for 150 or 200 kilo, kilogram patient, that cost is going to be considerably more possibly than even index in it and and so you have to take many different things into account to to adjust for cost and and their outcomes down the road if you're getting better mortality and you're getting better outcomes with it because it's actually got a known mechanism of action you need to take that into consideration
1: there's a qu- question related to one of the things that Dr. Mahan talked about in his presentation which is Indexanet currently has a conditional approval through the FDA, and there's more clinical studies being um, done currently and in the future. Will there be a chance that Indexanet is no longer available if some of these studies are negative or don't show benefit? And I think that's always a possibility. We've seen this happen with a, a variety of drugs. The thing with Indexanet right now is we know that it is highly effective at reducing the anti-TNA activity and taking the DOAC out of the equation uh, within a bleeding patient. What we don't know is if we compare it head-to-head with other types of of therapies, does it provide us a superior or better patient outcome and have an acceptable safety profile in comparison? We know that it looks on its own to be highly effective, does what it's supposed to do, and is a fairly safe medication to administer. I think the thing we do have to wait for is these better studies, like an I. You know, they're every institution, or you'll see scattered throughout the literature, and we even have publications ourselves, uh, looking at index versus other available treatment options. And currently, that's all observational data. So it's it's really hard to Make heads or tails out of a lot of the data that's that's currently, I would say, observational case series and/or database-driven, which look at both, you know, bleeding outcomes as well as thrombotic rates. And I think the the key here is, if you look at any of that literature, there is a broad range of hemostatic efficacy as well as uh, thrombotic risks for not restarting DOAX depending on the the agents and that just shows you kind of the variability and how we're using it and what we're doing currently. I think we've learned a lot from that those types of studies and we've learned you know kind of where we should and shouldn't use it at our own institutions and I highly encourage everyone to continue to conduct those studies but it's it's probably a little premature to make sweeping decisions on whether or not to use indexnet versus like a PCC or other supportive care option based upon some of those observational trials available
0: yeah great answer dr kaiser i would agree with your point Uh, is there a chance of of the conditional approval being revoked i i think it's a possibility i think it's it's probably a a low possibility i have faith in the science uh, having to have really read the animal studies on up and and really uh publish on that with with experts such as dr kate i think the mechanism of action is important and i think that this again was a rationally designed drug and, and it does what it was designed to do it grabs the 10a inhibitor it takes it out of play. Uh, it's a high risk population this bleeding population they have high mortality has been shown in all the studies and I agree that the PCC studies—they've been very low quality. And again, I, I believe as a healthcare system, and even as a national healthcare system, we've we've sat back and unfortunately just almost cemented their use with very low quality data. And most of it is not comparative. Most of it we don't know even uh, in the PCC. Studies if the patient was on an anticoagulant and what what that anticoagulant may have been and what the level of anticoagulation was and I think that's very different. Uh, so I think I think I have faith in the end that the science will will bore out that index and that will be better than usual medical care, including four factor PCC and I think thrombotic events and mortality in many of these and, and other safety signals and these PCC observational studies, sometimes prospective, most times retrospectively chart reviewed and gathered information. You just can't glean the level of, of information and data abstraction that you get from prospective clinical studies that were designed with the FDA. So, I think the chance of it, of indexa being revoked is, is small. I think that will move forward. And I believe in the end that it will be uh, better than usual medical care. And, and let's just play the devil's advocate though. Let's say that, that indexa is not as good as usual medical care or it's the same. Um, where did where would that leave us? It would leave us in, in the boat that we were in really before Endexinet and, and I Dare You Cizumab came out, which is we would have all this very low quality evidence, mostly non comparative of PCC. And I believe that we may be doing and w- the wrong thing with PCC for quite some time, um, really due to the biases that, that I mentioned, such as, such as, uh, anchoring bias because we feel that we had to do something for these leading patients. It may have been the wrong thing to do, but we continue doing it, and then there's confirmation bias and then there's there's really low quality of evidence that, that it was even working. There was no comparative data, yet uh, when things come to P and T for the Anexa 4 and those decisions, and Dexanet was beat up for not having a comparator data. And so it was very interesting to see, and and Dexanet get really um, chastised for uh, some of the things that were done similarly with PCC or were not done at all. And again, I think that's why uh, sitting at the table with the FDA and getting regulatory approval, having a known mechanism of action are important. And those are things that we don't have with PCC.
1: I think something that might be interesting to talk about. I, I think the the interesting questions that come up with regards to reversing these agents it really lands in the expertise of the pharmacist and DOAC pharmacology. And if you put together all the discussion points that we've talked about today, whether it's using a laboratory test to identify the the concentration or potentially the exposure of a DOAC still in the system when someone comes into a bleed as well as the intangibles in that everyone who comes in with a bleed doesn't have perfect renal function, perfect hepatic function and or free of drug drug interactions. I think it becomes a very complex situation but a perfect opportunity for a health system pharmacist to really make an impact in the decision making process and the reversal of of the agent when a patient comes in with a with a major bleed so i think that our unique kind of knowledge and expertise really um, can help a team in that we can evaluate if the exposure might be elevated or prolonged if the patient has renal dysfunction for example or if they got started on a new um, inhibitor of pgp or cytochrome p450 system for example or we can help potentially uh, let the team know that it's been a significant amount of time since the last dose and the exposure is, is low. It's a very frequent situation I'm faced with where a patient has a history of being on a DOAC, comes in with a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, but hasn't taken it or hasn't reliably taken it for a while and the, the team is just trying to order a reversal agent like an indexinet. And we can do a few other steps and, and take a look at at the exposure and determine that, you know, using a reversal agent in that patient may not be useful. I think for the health system pharmacists, this is this is a perfect kind of um, critical thinking scenario and where you can really make an impact in your in patients like this.
0: Yeah, Ty, I I completely agree. It's super important. The only other thing I would add is, like, of course, taking into consideration antiplatelets and uh, SSRIs, SNRIs part the coagulation cascade, you know, um, while you're kind of going through those critical approaches. But I, I completely agree that the pharmacist is well positioned to, to have an impact on these if you don't mind just for my own thinking just back up i guess to you know the doac pharmacology i really do think it's important uh, regarding if a patient comes in and they're in AKI or they had a new strong pgp3a4 inhibitor that was started are, do they have renal dysfunction do they also have liver dysfunction and um you know the pharmacist is very well positioned and a critical member of the team to Help the medical team and and uh, hospital make some of these decisions. So, uh, what what are some of the things that your team thinks about in regards to DOAC pharmacology when they're approaching the bleeding patient?
1: Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. We want to understand the exposure. So, how much of the drug is still present? Are there things that are potentially uh, increasing that exposure, we'll look at the renal function and use the accompanying tests, some of the qualitative tests that we've talked about in our talk as well as the podcast, whether it's an anti-tena or PT, INR, and also look at drug interactions, new drugs that were started. As you mentioned, there are there are several that can significantly increase exposure, so that's going to prolong or potentially change my approach and dosing of a a reversal strategy, and also help guide me when we talk about those windows of, of opportunity to treat these these patients. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I think you bring up some great points. We, we know the half-lives are relatively short of of the 10A inhibitors and longer, of course, for dabigatran. And we we as pharmacists have to take that into consideration when these patients are presenting to us with a bleed. And as you mentioned, really, of course, patients that have uh, an acute kidney injury or have gone into uh, acute renal failure, we know that the half-lives of these agents have, have uh, a longer half-life. And so they may be in the system much longer than than what we we would have thought. And that's a, a great area that the pharmacist can step in, evaluate the patient, look at renal function, look at liver function, look at new drugs that may have been added, and look at concomitant drugs that may also affect the coagulation cascade, such as antiplatelets that are also overlooked when we're treating these bleeding patients. But I, I think that they those DOAC pharmacology questions do come into play. I've seen patients that have had active apixaban and rivaroxaban in their system after renal failure and accumulation four to seven days after their last dose. And so if they bleed, then that's obviously something that needs to be taken into consideration if they still have therapeutic levels of anticoagulant on board and and the the flip side is true also there may be inducers of these agents and and you brought up the situations where maybe the patient was an adherent and they have ribroxaban or apixaban prescribed but they're not taking it and uh maybe maybe lab tests or just questioning them or questioning family we may be able to gather more information that they haven't been taking their a Pixaban, or rivaroxaban or dabigatran and and that's important information to glean from the patient and family because those are patients that may not need a reversal strategy and we just need to treat the bleed uh, with supportive care possibly surgical intervention but there's patients that we aren't going to reverse due to it being a futile situation there's also patients that we may not need to reverse because the pharmacist steps in and says I don't think they have active anticoagulant on board. The bleed is is being caused uh, spontaneously or by something else. But I do think it really highlights the role of the health system pharmacist in in, in the teamwork that we have to undertake to, to deal with these very high-stress uh, bleeding situations in the hospital.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Not to mention, if you save a couple doses of this, you probably cost justified your your job.
0: We would document that often with four factor PCC and CT surgery. And, you know, we avoided use of this because it wasn't necessary, or even with with warfarin patients or, you know, hepatic. hepatic uh enzyme elevation and liver failure there's so many controversial issues where factors getting used and reversal agents are getting used and they sometimes they don't need to be used so it's a great point and and it is cost savings for the health system to make sure we're not using them inappropriately
1: did you have any other points you wanted to to make you want to talk about
0: (laughs) I think we've covered most of it. I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how everything plays out. Um, if indexnet is better than usual medical care, and we, we won't know the full answer with the interim results possibly being made available to the public in October of 2022, but I do see possible medical legal imp- implications, uh, down the line if, if it is better. And if, if we similarly took the wrong approach as what happened with Novo 7 and, and it gained widespread acceptance and use, I think if we made the same mistake with four factor PCC, which we may have as a health system uh, made the wrong mistake in using that, because uh, I just don't think the data is there. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how how things play out i think it's a, a very litigious society here in the us and um uh, it it'll it'll bring up some interesting questions as we get the results of these uh these future uh, studies such as the next i next s etc and you know it's great working with you dr kaiser over the over the uh last few weeks in this area
1: oh, it's been fun i i really enjoyed it I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Kurt Mahan for our excellent discussion. It's always a pleasure uh, working and and talking with an expert like yourself. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast from ProCE, and we hope you learned some useful information about managing anticoagulant reversal agents. Have a wonderful day.